This is Artist Soapbox. Through interviews and original scripted audio fiction, we deliver stories that speak to your hearts and your minds. Hello, Soapboxers. This is Mara Thomas. Thank you so much for joining me for this conversation with Isabel O'Hara Walsh. Isabel leads writing workshops through the Redbud Writing Project. Redbud offers classes virtually and around the triangle on topics like writing the novel, experimental fiction, and one that Isabel and I talk about, joyful creation, how to get your writing juices flowing when staring at that blank page. Isabel shares about their experience incorporating anti-racist practices into the workshop and feedback processes. An important resource in helping to shape this framework is the book, The Anti-Racist Writer's Workshop, How to Decolonize the Creative Classroom by Felicia Rose Chavez. Chavez's book challenges, in her words, art's politics of power and privilege and lays bare the ways that traditional, read white supremacist, methods of running workshops work to silence the voices of writers of color and writers with other marginalized identities. Isabel and I also discuss another artist soapbox favorite when it comes to rethinking the feedback process, Liz Lerman's critical response process. Lerman's work helps tailor the feedback process to help the creator retain agency over their work and create an environment where they get the feedback they're actually looking for, rather than an onslaught of unfiltered opinions. Please see the show notes for links to these important resources. Isabel O'Hara Walsh is a writer, teacher, and practicing witch. A graduate of the MFA program in fiction at North Carolina State University, Isabel teaches fiction writing at the Redbud Writing Project, has published short stories in Pastel, Pastoral, and The Metaworker, and is at work on her second novel. Through her business, Edgewise Witch, Isabel offers transformative one-on-one and group work sessions that incorporate tarot, writing, and other ritual to clarify the right path forward for her clients. Please enjoy this conversation with Isabel O'Hara Walsh. Hi, Isabel. We are so happy to have you with us today on Artist Soapbox. Welcome. Thank you, Mara. It's such a pleasure. I'm so glad to be here. Yeah, it's really great to just get to connect with someone in the writing world. And I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about how you came to be part of Redbud and yeah, just kind of share that journey with us. I came to Redbud through the North Carolina State Fiction MFA program. So Redbud was started by two women who were in the year above me at the MFA. And I knew that they were going to start this writing program for adults when they graduated. And that seemed really amazing. And I also didn't know how long I was going to stay in the area after graduating. So I was excited to have the possibility of maybe getting involved there, but really was trying to kind of keep an open mind. My partner and I were considering moving after I graduated, but so I graduated in spring of 2020, right into Uh. the pandemic. And by that point, I was really excited about Redbud and, and what they were starting and knew I wanted to start teaching for them. Also knew that we were probably going to be staying in North Carolina a little bit longer than maybe we had thought. And over the years, that's that's really shifted. I now 
land to live in Raleigh indefinitely and, and love living here. That shifted. I started teaching for Redbud. I started teaching fiction one. Fiction is definitely my specialty. And over the last, I guess that's two years, I've kind of expanded my repertoire of classes to include a whole bunch of other things. I teach writing the eerie and uncanny. I teach a joyful invention, sort of generative, get your creative juices flowing class. And it's been really amazing to have kind of not, I haven't been part of things since day one, but I, I definitely connected with Redbud early and with Emily and Arshia who run Redbud. It's really fun because they are building something even as I am a part of it. So I get to really hear their vision and support it and, you know, throw my ideas into the hat. It's just been a really cool two years of watching this community form around creative people living in the triangle who maybe didn't have space for writing or even creativity at all in their lives before and who are really carving out this space and honoring that part of themselves. I think that's definitely one of my favorite things about teaching for Red, but it's just being with people in that time when when they're really making space to be creative. I love that. I have already got four or five questions to ask <laughs> just <Cool>. based on <laughs> what you shared. Well, first, I feel like I even want to zoom out a little bit further. What brought you to the NC State MFA program and, you know, kind of gathering maybe not a North Carolina native. So where where did you live prior to this? Yeah, I grew up in Massachusetts. And then I went to college in Ohio and moved back to Portland, Maine. After that, I was an English major and had uh, like a very, I don't know, privileged liberal arts education. And when I moved to Maine, I started working in day school, kind of doing aftercare. And and I also played in a band for a while while I was there. I basically graduated and was like, I'm so tired of writing. I never want to write again. I only want to do music now. And I uh, was kind of trying to create a life in which that could happen. And it took me about a year to really, really, really miss writing and need that creative outlet, which is something I've always really loved. I've always loved writing stories. I've always loved reading fiction. I really struggle with nonfiction, but fiction's always been very, very easy and pleasurable for me. And so when I was living in Maine, I started writing a romance novel just to like have something to get myself back into it, which did not make it very far, but I loved kind of just playing around with. And then at a certain point, I just knew that I wanted to go back to school for fiction writing and that that was kind of the next step on my path of doing the work that I really loved. And so I started to research programs and uh, it's often really competitive. So I applied twice and the second time got into NC State's program and Belle Boggs reached out to me, who's the current director of the program. And, and she was really kind and warm and it just felt like a good place to be energetically for me. I, I do. I also do a lot of energy work. So it was, it's really feeling into it from that place. So my partner and I we had specifically picked programs that were in places where we would both be able to find jobs and things to do. And Raleigh was on that list. So we moved here. And I think we're both sort of like, ready to get somewhere warmer than Maine and ready to start a new chapter of our individual and collective lives. And um, Raleigh was was something, you know, I, I had really thought I would move back to New England and then and moved here and we just found so much community here that we feel really part of and love so much. And uh, Redbud has definitely been a part of that, of 
of just like having writer friends, which is something I never had before moving here, having people who are passionate about the same craft that I get really excited about, and just being able to have those conversations regularly is something I'm deeply grateful for and I find super exciting. Well, and I don't know about you, but to the community piece, you know, for myself at the risk of projecting, it's also really, I know for myself, it's really helpful to have folks to be accountable to, you know, so whether that's, you know, you're going to have coffee with someone or they're going to be reading an upcoming draft, like that is a thing that helps keep me motivated to do my practice and to make sure that I have something for them to read. Yeah, absolutely. And having that be something that is infused with like friendship and mutual care is really makes it so much easier to stay engaged with. And I think that that is something that's pretty cool about the triangle. I've been, I was talking with someone who I think was also a a transplant to this area recently and, and just noting like there are like a lot of small cities in one area or like big towns and each one has kind of a different flavor and there's different community initiatives, but to be able to live in somewhere where there's just like a lot of people and a lot of people who have energy to start things and organize and, and stay engaged with each other. There's sort of like a special alchemy of the way the triangle is organized that is unlike anywhere I've ever lived. And that I think does kind of foster those creative connections, starting things, being passionate, because I think part of it is also that it's just, it's really beautiful here. There's a lot of nature and that's interspersed with, for me, that's, that's really important to my creative world. And it's interspersed with the dense, densely populous areas in a way that uh, feels like it feeds the community energy. I love the way you described the alchemy because I have felt that too. And I also have not lived in North Carolina my whole life. I grew up in Minnesota, but I've been here for over 20 years. And I really resonate with the part where you described each town in the triangle sort of has its own flavor. Like I consider the Carborough Chapel Hill music scene to be the one that I, you know, kind of feel the most connected to. And yet in Durham has been part of my theater life. So just, you know, for anybody who is interested in whether it's visual art or dance or performing arts or writing, like there are opportunities to get involved, you know, no matter if you went to school for it, no matter if it's your first time, no matter if you have been doing one thing for a long time and want to try something else, like there's just, you know, lots of people out there who are just there to support and help make things happen and connect you with folks. To me, it's always felt like, the bar to entry is really low, you know, mostly just takes the will. And from there, like the community just kind of exists all around it. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think it's, it's exciting to know that that's out there. And to, I mean, and and this is sort of tied into our larger conversation for today. But also part of why I moved here is that the place that I lived in Maine is largely white and like really largely (laughs) like there's, it's a very white area and moving here was something that was just sort of like, well, I I grew up in New England and I wanted to work through some of my own stuff by moving somewhere that was more diverse, where there was just like a little bit more direct conversation around racial inequity and, you know, where the elections were a little more purple, a little harder to tell, or maybe clearly 
read and where, you know, coming from somewhere where it was just like democratic elections were kind of a guarantee, but there is also a level of complacency with that. I think that complacency and community are there, they have real push pull. So moving here, there's, I think, a really exciting lack of complacency and a real abundance of fruitful conversations about what is unjust and what is unacceptable for keeping all community members safe and cared for that is really tied into building stronger creative bonds as well. Well, thank you for partly doing my job for me, which is offering (laughs) this beautiful transition to some other areas that we're going to focus on today. You know, I've shared with our listeners before that part of my focus with my Artist Soapbox episodes is to talk about uh, the places where creativity and mental health are coexisting, which for my money is just about all the time. And I know that through Redbud, one of the things you've been developing is an anti-racist approach to running writing groups. I'd just love it if you could share a little more about how you came to devise this. Let's start there, and then we'll get into what it's been like on the ground. But first, let's start with you know, how, how this idea came to you. Yeah, I would say, not surprisingly, the idea came from a student of color. And I think that's often the case that we get sort of like, reminded and the emotional labor is often done by the people of color in our communities to get us on a better path. And so, but my hope was, okay, what can I do as a white teacher now to uh, really hear that and move with it and shift the way that my workshops are done? Because I was using for my first almost whole year of, of Redbud, I was using a workshop method that is pretty standard and I would say traditional by which I think I, by which I know I'm also saying developed in white supremacist academic circles. And that's not to say that there's, you know, I say white supremacist pretty broadly in the sense of we are all a part of white supremacy unless we are actively working to be anti-racist. It's just the structure in which we live and operate. So as with a lot of structures that have become sort of the norm, the workshop structure that I was using was one that involves like a student will submit their work, everyone reads it, everyone makes notes on it, everyone writes a response letter about what they are critiquing in it. And then in the workshop itself, the student remains silent the whole time and listens to feedback while taking notes and then at the end can ask questions. And my student recommended to me was a book called The Anti-Racist Writing Workshop, How to Decolonize the Creative Classroom by Felicia Rose Chavez. And in it, Felicia Rose Chavez talks about how that traditional Iowa Writers Workshop, I think is where it gets credit for originating, how that workshop method is often inherently violent towards students of color who spend a lot of their days being silenced anyways. And so this idea that when someone comes to a creative classroom, they should have a voice and that voicedness should inherently be a part of the classroom, especially and in particular for students of color, was is really foundational to that book, which I, I strongly recommend reading it to anyone who's running a writing workshop or 
may have a say in how to run a writing workshop or just anyone who's working in creative groupings. I think it does a really great job of talking about how to have a trauma-informed and anti-racist approach to any creative gathering where feedback is being provided. And so I read that book and started right away to implement some of Chavez's ideas about how to structure a workshop. And the switch that I made that she outlines is, so students admits their piece. I think that she doesn't have people write margin notes. I let people choose whether or not they want notes written in the margins of their piece. Oh, and then the author, instead of receiving a bunch of critique letters from the workshop participants, the author writes an artist statement, which this is Felicia Rose Chavez uses the Liz Lerman critical response process, which is was a critique process established by a, a dance professor, and then adds on to it a few things, including this artist statement where the author says what was challenging for them about the piece, what was successful, what they're hoping for moving forward. There's a few other questions. And then really importantly, a few craft questions. I have my students do two craft questions about what they like to work on and revision. So it really places the authority back in the hands of the writer so that there's this sort of inherent affirmation of like, you are smart enough to know what you need help with, and you can guide us better than anyone else, including a workshop leader. And also, then the autonomy is back in the student's hands. So let's say that it's a student of color in a classroom of white students. There is risk of microaggression. There is a risk of verbal violence. And the student has more control over whether or not they are put in a dangerous or harmful situation by being able to say in the moment of the workshop, yes, I'd like to hear feedback on this, or no, I'm not ready to hear feedback on that right now, and choosing who they are interested in hearing feedback from. So it's just a real transfer of authority from this sort of like nebulous workshop leader, director, like directorial, like someone else making decisions for you to really putting it back into more communal, like communal and community oriented and focused on what will be useful moment to moment and what will be safe and comfortable moment to moment sort of approach. I'm just over here nodding along with everything that you're saying, because I found Liz Lerman's work a few years ago. And actually on this podcast, we've talked about it and in our kind of artist soapbox writings about the inherent discomfort that comes in the critique process. You know, I'm over here just imagining the times that I've had my play scripts that are going through a first or a second draft and hearing people reading them aloud for the first time you know, really brings up so much in us. And, you know, thinking about this from a mental health point of view, our brains can't tell the difference between fear based on sharing writing versus fear of, you know, being eaten by a wild animal. It still pumps the same hormones through our bodies. It kind of hits the same part of our, our lizard brain. So I'd love to hear folks implementing that kind of process, you know, and and adapting it for their specific art forms. Cause I just, I'm such a believer in, we don't need to have the kitchen sink approach to critique. We can really get intentional about how it's done. And like you mentioned, letting the creator 
be in control and have that agency around what they're willing to let in or what they're willing to receive. Yeah, I really appreciate that. And and that idea of mental health is so, I think that it also gets the backseat when we're sort of like deciding whether or not to use established structures for whether it's for a creative classroom or like really any type of academic setting or really any type of setting. I think that mental health often, well, I think it gets the backseat. And I also think that white mental health is often just like much more in the forefront of the media and the public eye. And so what was really helpful for me in reading this book was Alicia Rose Chavez just focusing on prioritizing the mental health of students of color in a creative environment and just saying like, here are the things that are different for white people. Like, here's what you have and have access to. And here are ways that you are taking care of on the daily that a student of color might not necessarily have and and is probably likely to not have such that it is, if you want to be able to like safely and invitingly invite students of color into your classroom, you're going to have to create a different kind of space. That, yes, completely agree. And so what has it been like, you know, as you've been implementing this new method in your workshops, how's it going? I think in a lot of ways, it's more intuitive for a lot of people. There's sort of this, like, aside from, I mean, aside from and in addition to being anti-racist, it, I have a lot of white students, and they also often enjoy the ability to participate in conversation about their work rather than being, you know, waiting until the end to to start to ask questions at the end of the workshop. And I think that there's really something there about just, like, creating a warm and welcoming space for for everybody that is not you know may perhaps it's not necessary to have good mental health as a white person but it could also be quite nice to have this like warm friendly sort of conversational space which is not to say that if you do not use this workshop method you cannot have that i think that that warm sort of camaraderie is something that red bud students are really great at creating and so that's definitely just part of like to use the word alchemy again it's part of the alchemy of a group of red bud students often but there's so in in that way i enjoy it i think that it opens the door for a little bit more taking on of of authority as a writer and responsibility which i think is really exciting as like to focus it on it as an anti-racist approach I do get some pushback from students sometimes. I think the biggest thing that gets pushed, I think, first of all, it's just unfamiliar to a lot of people, which is perfectly understandable. And there's sort of this awkward adjustment period of like, oh, well, I've never taken a workshop like this before. I don't really know how it'll feel. I don't totally trust that it will be useful to me because I've never done it. And I definitely understand that this is not yet the norm for writers workshops. And then I think the biggest place that I get pushback, there's a part of the workshop process that Chavez has created in in conversation with Liz Lerman's process. That is, once you have in the workshop, the author, there's sort of like a few steps to kind of get us into the world of the piece and and sort of bring everyone back into thinking about the piece. And then eventually the author walks us through the craft questions that they've asked in their artist statement. So they'll say, you know, 
I was wondering, this is written in third person. Do you think it would work better in first? Do you think that it would connect with the reader more deeply this way? Do you think it would serve my my like meaning purposes better? That's just an example. And and we'll we'll spend time with what the author has decided to spend time on. And then at the end, there's space for what Chavez calls permissioned opinions and neutral questions. And this Mm -hmm. is where conceptually, I think it gets a little trickier. Permissioned opinions is basically what in a quote unquote traditional writer's workshop would be the whole thing, would be just people saying what they think and are critiquing about different parts of the piece. But in this workshop method, the person, the participant who has an opinion has to say, I have an opinion about your character development. Would you be interested in hearing it? And then the author has the option to say yes or no. And a neutral question is something like, what were you trying to achieve with your character development? What was what was your hope for that arc? Or I I was really curious about this character. Can you tell me a little more about the role that they play? Those are very similar questions, but I think you get the idea. And it's not a, you know, why did you do this? Or I think this would be better if it were different. Do you agree? It's very neutral. And the author really isn't, I think, intended to start a conversation with the author that might help them clarify some things. But the place that people get stuck on is the permission opinions. And it is almost entirely white students who get stuck on this. I also teach a majority of white students. So that's definitely intertwined. And I don't say that to accuse my white students of, you know, not going along with the program or not getting it. I think it is a tricky space for people with white privilege to wrap their heads around. And I got to do my, you know, unpacking and unlearning in private when I read this book to myself. And so in the moment, if people are put on the spot to do that unpacking and unlearning in the moment, I think that that can be quite challenging because there's often sort of this reaction of, well, you know, if it's a, if it's a white student being workshopped, they'll be like, well, you can just say all the opinions, you know, why mm-hmm. would you need to ask permission? And I have to kind of go, okay, that's cool that you feel that way. You are allowed to give a banner acceptance to all opinions, but that's an act that you are choosing to do. And I'm going to continue to remind everyone to ask for permission. That is really crucial. And that's something that Chavez talks about in the anti-racist writing workshop is that often it's white male students who are like, well, this is kind of too soft of a workshop. It doesn't feel rigorous enough. And that sort of perhaps troubling idea that something must be kind of painful and, and rigorous in a challenging way in order to be useful. And I think that that often overlaps with the permissioned opinions idea that's like, well, just bring it on, I can take it. That may be true for that person. And that might be the most useful thing for them. But I also think it's something that we as white people often say without thinking that it's like, well, I'm, you know, I can take it, bring it on, tell me what you tell me what you really think. And, and this idea that for someone who perhaps has not moved through the day with as much privilege and has has weathered a lot more challenges, being put through the ringer during a creative and vulnerable time is actually really unproductive and potentially harmful. And so just that's definitely the place that's been required the most conversation in workshops to say, hey, this is a non-negotiable. And also here's, if you have questions about why it's a non-negotiable, we can absolutely talk about them. 
And once we sort of open that door of like, here's why it's the case, it generally makes sense to everybody and everyone is accepting of it. There's sort of this like maybe first day or two, but I would say for the most part overall, my students have been really on board. And for those who like needed another day or two to work through those ideas, they have that. And that's the fact that they need that is totally fine. Then it comes, it circles right back to the community of the classroom and the space that we co-create together. I think that that is really central to it. And and Chavez really focuses a lot on that idea of this is so we can create a collective narrative of everybody's voice. And so if we keep circling back to that idea that the the core tenant is to create a, a collective, you know, a new canon with everybody's voice heard it starts to feel more intuitive. What you're saying just reminds me of, I'm sure I saw this on Instagram forever ago, but it was just a very simple statement. You know, If you work with human beings in any capacity, being trauma-informed is not optional. You know, And I think it's part of unpacking privilege. It's part of deconstructing these these ways that a lot of folks take as just, this is just how you run a workshop, you know, you take for granted without really considering how this came to be and the impact on people with marginalized identities who are also trying to navigate these systems. You know, it's not surprising to me to hear that some folks are, are struggling with that piece of, well, this is okay for me, so it should be okay for everybody else. And it sounds like you're really giving your students this opportunity to learn a different way and model this other way of just organizing the the feedback process and this collective narrative process. I think it sounds really beautiful. I wish we had all the time in the world to talk about it because this is so enriching and it's giving me a lot to think about. You know, as we are getting toward the end of our discussion today, I wanted to circle back. You mentioned something that was so interesting talking about the classes that you teach. And if I heard it right, what I heard was joyful invention. Did I get that right? Yes. As a person who kind of needs to jumpstart my joyfulness with my creativity every now and then, I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about how that class goes and what are some of the things that help you connect with the joy of creation? Yeah, I love that class. I love this question. It's a real joy to teach as well. Um, I think, so I teach kind of two levels of it. One, I think right now we're just calling it joyful invention or joyful creation one and two. And But the idea is basically for joyful invention. Last summer, I read Linda Berry's syllabus recommended by a friend and it blew my mind and got me really pumped up. And I was like, I gotta teach a class. It's based on this where like writers are pushed into uncomfortable spaces with their creativity and where they are, you know, I think that's where the electricity kind of starts. And and Linda Berry talks about that. She's sort of like, this is, you know, we got to, we got to go into the spook house. I think she calls it rather than the merry-go-round where if you're on the merry-go-round, you're not really making anything interesting. And it's when, you know, not in a harmful way, but when you are feeling vulnerable and kind of on the edge of that vulnerability that you you make interesting things that that feel representative of your processing and emotions. And so that class, just basic joyful invention class, I constructed using a lot of Barry's ideas, but also just sort of starting to be like, okay, well, what for me helps me jumpstart 
my process and I write novels. So there's a lot of jumpstarting that has to happen during the like two year minimum commitment of writing this really long thing. You have to keep coming back to it and recommitting to it and, and getting re-excited about it all over again in order to complete a story of that length. And so I started incorporating drawing, which I do in my own practice. And then I have a day with my students where I'll just read them like children's stories from different countries and have them kind of either doodle or write down ideas that come up for them. Or just sometimes people will just listen and it's like, no one ever just reads you a story anymore as an adult, but it was so many people's favorite school time was just being read to. And it really allows your mind and your soul to kind of wander into these creative territories. And um, so it's really for people who maybe need to restart that flow of creative energy. And it, it is not a wrong or bad thing. If you do not feel it flowing all the time, that's what everyone experiences. And so just having the space where for me, I think the biggest part for me was making sure that I didn't fill up the space too much and that I left open space for magic to happen during class with just whatever came in to fill the void. And boy, was I glad that I did that because we it's it makes every class really different and really guided by the people who are investing themselves creatively in the class. And we have such fascinating discussions about what feels meaningful and and sparks interest and makes us feel like, you know, creating is hard and it is often very emotional. Often what people end up writing about is like, it's not, I was joy and fun are not the same or joy and pleasure are not the same. That joy is, is often pleasurable, but is also often just like this deep creative burst of knowing that you're on some right path for what you're trying to make. And I wonder too, you know, just with the container that you're helping to make in your classrooms where people feel hopefully more supported and able to get into that vulnerable space, like ride that edge, get into that spook house. I really love that idea. Because to me, when we are operating from a place of safety, it helps us access those the more vulnerable sides, just knowing that, you know, we can we can come back to home base and we can always kind of touch back into a place where we, you know, we don't have to live there. We just go visit it once in a while. Yeah, I think that's totally true. That's what I really, that's what I hope. And that's, I think, for my own, like, in thinking about this podcast and in talking with you and, you know, just in knowing that I was going to be recording with you today, I was sort of thinking like, okay, do I, should it be me to stand on the artist soapbox and talk about anti-racism as a white person? And I think the answer that I came up with and I'm, I'm sitting with is like, yeah, I should take on labor so that it's not all on people of color. And yet I know that like, there's no way for me to end this call and have like done the right thing. It's just about continuing conversation. And so I think that that connects into that idea of like, yep, that's the space that I'm trying to create. And I really hope that it feels that way to everyone in my classroom. And, you know, if it doesn't, then it's just committing to having those conversations about how to shift that more. And that's, you know, I'm, I'm deeply grateful to my student who mentioned this book to me and was like, you should look into this. It's like, yeah, thank you for 
thank you for passing that along. And now let's, you know, that was a great conversation and let's just have more conversations. Yeah. And we'll be sure to share a link to that book in our show notes. And we really appreciate you sharing that resource with our listeners. And it's been a true pleasure to get to talk with you today. Thank you so much for being here, Isabel. Likewise. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate your asking. Established in 2017, Artist Soapbox is a podcast production studio based in North Carolina. Artist Soapbox produces original scripted audio fiction and an ongoing interview podcast about the creative process. We cultivate aspiring audio dramatists and producers, and we partner with organizations and individuals to create new audio content. For more information and ways to support our work, check out artistsoapbox.org or find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. The Artist Soapbox theme song is Ashes by Juliana Finch.